So it might be an interesting title to you, and I, I pray that you would afford me the time to explain a little bit. Truths that polarize and galvanize. I've used these terms before as we've looked at the words of Jesus and the effect that they have to polarize people and galvanize them in one position or another. The, he, that's what he's doing. He's winnowing. He's separating the believers from the unbelievers, the faithful from those who are not, those who actually, in fact, with all the talking he's doing, they're, they have murder in their hearts. They, they're looking for an opportunity to convict him of something that he said that's wrong so that they can bring him to trial. Of course, they, their version of a trial violates their own law. They tried him by night, which the Hebrew law is dead set against that. Um, so I want to explain these two terms so what we all understand. I'm sure you probably already have some understanding, but it's going to be key as we go forward because this is actually what we're seeing before our eyes in these 11 verses. And we've seen it before and we'll see it after. It's really the same thing. But the intensity of it is stepping up. So first to polarize is to separate or differentiate. It's to uh, cause to divide into two sharp contrasting groups or sets of opinions and beliefs. That's the nature of the gospel. The gospel is, is polarizing. That's what it does. And what it does, as I said, to galvanize is to shock or excite someone into action, either good or bad, right or wrong. You, you get galvanized in it. If you, you stay exposed to the Word of God, as intense as it is over a period of time, it will galvanize you if it, that you belong to him or that you do not. And he's doing this, I, I want to be careful to point out, because of his grace, because of his mercy. It, it's not loving to let someone continue on with a false understanding. Maybe some of you have known somebody in your life that had a, a part of, that they're, they're subscribing to a false belief system and they're perishing if they don't believe the truth of the gospel. There is no other gospel, as Paul is careful to point out in the letter to the Galatians. So I want to start out with a statement then for us so that we can see this as it develops. The truths that Jesus speaks pierce the hearts and expose the true identity of those listening to him. Talked about it in the first hour, that the word of God has the power to incite or ignite it is going to galvanize you in one place or the other. If somebody's acting indifferent to the Word of God, in other words, an unbeliever, and you're trying to share the gospel with them, you're speaking truths right straight out of Scripture, and they act like indifferent or apathetic, they're galvanized at that moment. They're galvanized in their disinterest in His words. They don't want to hear it, right? So one camp or the other is not a third category, and He's making sure that that's clear. And if you think about it, that's what he came for right from the beginning. It reminded me of the beginning of Luke. We'll be focusing on that at this Christmas time. Luke chapter 2, you remember when uh, Simeon made his prophecy? In Luke chapter 2, verse 34 to 35, it's Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold this child. Now, let's stop for a moment. What would you say? Wouldn't you like to just say, Wow, congratulations. What a sweet little baby. This is... This is going to be wonderful. Uh, have you got the nursery all ready for them? And man, this is, this is so wonderful. Congratulations. We're just so blessed right now. What, is, what does he actually say? He says words that are polarizing. 
right there in this glorious occasion of the Christ child coming, he says to Mary, his own mother. Now, he didn't say this to the crowd. He says it straight to Mary. Imagine this, the one who gave him birth. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising, note the contrast, of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. That's what he's doing. Truths that when they come over time, polarize and put somebody in one camp or the other, and they're galvanized there. He's winnowing. He's, here. he's come to do that, to save those who belong to him. That's his point in coming. When we uh, heard from Isaiah... 55, where it says in verse 11 of Isaiah 55, as, as uh, J.D. was reading it, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. So this is what he's talking about. This is a prophecy of Christ. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed for the thing which I sent it. We'd like to think that, oh, he's talking about every time that word goes out, somebody gets saved. No, 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 no. When we look at Simeon's prophecy, it helps us understand when he comes, and he is the Word, isn't he? He is the Word. He is the Logos that has come. When he comes, it's going to polarize. It's going to separate from one camp to the other. But as I said, the severity of Jesus in these discourses are being are ratcheted up. The statements are increasing as the cost of rejecting him is, is growing and being declared by Jesus. So bring your attention to John uh, 8, our same chapter. If you remember just a few verses back in verse 21 to 24, look at the contrast. Just to bring back that to our recollection, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. He's making it as clear as you can. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I love the clarity of the word, don't you? However bracing it is to hear it. Where do you stand according to this word, according to this message? Know where you stand. It's going to be in one place or another. But Jesus never backs down. He never wavers. He never tr tries to soft-pedal the word. The word is not soft-pedaled in Scripture. It is what it is. We don't have the prerogative to, to soft-pedal it and to round off the edges. We, we don't have the prerogative to be able to compromise so that we can get more people in the church or please people and make them happy. That's not something he's given us license to do. He bids us preach my word, and those who belong to me will see me, and they will be drawn to me, and they will come to me. That's a whole prophecy of Isaiah with regard to Christ's coming. So... This contrast, so they're obviously not getting it in 21 to 24. So he's ratcheting it up. It's getting more severe. He's not backing down. These become increasingly more shocking and effect and 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 um, and offensive. They're they're deeply offended by these words, and that's the heart of the legalistic moralist. That's what they were. 
These were legalistic moralists who measure things by their morality and only have judgment to offer out. So they're trying to find something to judge him on. He's not giving it to them. If they search the scriptures, they'll see that he's true. He even pointed that out to them before. But they're not listening. Why? Because they're galvanized. The more piercing and searing and heart-penetrating this proclamation is with Jesus as we're going along through, the more truth becomes hardened in their resolve to kill him. That's polarizing. It's galvanizing. I would love for a prettier story, more like something you're probably seeing on the Hallmark movies you're watching at Christmas time, where they always work out. It's always... I'm not allowed to come into the living room and predict who's going to end up with who anymore. I've been banished. And for good reason. For good reason. The more faithfully and consistently and purely that the word is presented, as Christ is doing that now, the more it's, it's preached by Christ and all those who came after him, the more polarizing and galvanizing it becomes. By the end of the chapter, what are they doing? Do you remember? By the end of the chapter, he's saying, before Abraham was, what? I am. What does that mean? I, I, he's claiming to be Yahweh. And so they pick up stones to kill him. But he slips away because his hour has not yet come. So this is what the word's going to do. Yet we're still compelled by the mercy and grace of God. This is merciful. This isn't a hard statement in the sense that um, he's hard-nosed about things. No, he's here because he loves them. He's here because he wants to see them affected by the word in such a way that is in accord with what he's speaking, which is the truth of who he is. I am the Messiah. I am. You know, they say in another place, they say in another place, if you're the Messiah, why don't you just tell us? <laughs> Isn't that kind of ridiculous given where we've been through all of this? He's clearly the Messiah. He's made that very, very clear. So these, this is him being merciful. We're merciful when we tell people truths that are hard for them to hear. We talk about that a lot. It's just plain from Scripture. John MacArthur said this, it's critical that sin be confronted. That's what he's doing. That's what love does. And depending upon the resistance of the sinner to that confrontation, the confrontation has, has to be escalated, as you would do with anybody on the verge of severe danger. If they don't listen to the first call and the second call, you start elevating the extremity of the call and the severity of the call because of the imminent real, uh, reality of the danger. And that's exactly what our Lord does, end quote. So this is what he's doing. He's ratcheting it up out of his love for them, and they're being so steep, so galvanized in false religion. And so here's the next statement I have for you before we get to these um, uh, points that I have for you this morning. The Word of God pierces the heart of man with its polarizing and galvanizing effect. So that's what we're saying here. That's what we see. I want to give you a different example from the Old Testament of a group of people that are actually galvanized in favor of God and what He has to say. And it has a humbling, sub, sub, uh, submissive effect on the people. And it's King David. He's praying with the assembly. 
And so in 1 Chronicles 29:17, he prays, I know, my God, that you test the heart. That's the word of God. It does. It goes into the heart. And have pleasure in uprightness. In uprightness, in the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. That should be the net effect of somebody who's been galvanized in the right camp and settled on their love for Christ, their fear and uh, a reverential fear of God. David is saying, essentially, you test our hearts with the polarizing effect of your word, polarizing in that it either draws or repels. It has pierced our hearts and galvanized our resolve to love you, serve you, and obey you. That's my paraphrase. That's, that's what I'm seeing. And you'll see those two different reactions to the Word of God. That's why he keeps talking. This, these are extended, these are very extensive discourses that he's having with them. If, if he didn't care about them, he would have given up long ago, but he keeps going. He keeps going, even though only he can know this, we can't, but they're getting ready to kill him. He, he, even knowing that, he continues to share the truth <coughs> with them. Excuse me. In Romans 2.29, it says a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. See, they were looking for the praises of men. We've seen that in another place in the Gospels. They were looking for the approval of man, and, and, and the people were looking for the approval of the Pharisees, and so on so that they can feel good about themselves without any consideration of what God is actually after. God's actually after something that's been dead up to the point at which he brings his word, and that's their heart. They're dead people. We are stillborn at birth, spiritually speaking. We're dead and blind. And so his word comes and people come alive. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 23, 27 to 28. Woe to you. That, that should get their attention, shouldn't it? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs on the outside, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So religious, the religious moralists never see their blindness. They're, they're blind to their own self-righteousness, their, their own rightness based upon uh, their assessment of things and, and who they are and the right things that they have done. But they can't go any further than that. God won't let them go any further than that. And so he stops them with his own words. They're stopped in their tracks. They don't like it. They're wrestling there. They're, they're, they've got murder just seething in their hearts. They keep listening and they're looking for one thing, something to judge him on because they want him in the court so they can kill him. And you know that that eventually happens. They're blind guides condemning others, never themselves. That's the takeaway. So these are the, the religious people of the day, the Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees. They're the respected religious people in Jerusalem there. So outside they appear pious, but inside is a heart galvanized with pride. I remember Jay Adams once saying, to the average Jew, the Pharisee was a good man. 
Why? Because it was all outward. We can't see hearts. People seem like, you know, that everything looks great. These guys were well, well respected back then. So I bet the people that hadn't landed on one camp or the other are listening to Jesus and saying, maybe we need to take another look at these Pharisees. His, what he's saying is compelling. It's very intriguing to me. And I need to listen to what he says. The amazing power of the Word of God. There was a, one of the early church fathers, Justin Martyr, who was arguing with a Jewish man who said this. This is how, this is how convinced they are in their rightness and they're the people of God. They're the, the favored ones. Quote, they who are the seed of Abraham according to the flesh shall in any case, even if they be sinners and unbelieving and disobedient toward God, share in the eternal kingdom. Are you comfortable with that? Even if they're sinners, unbelieving, and disobedient toward God? Yeah, they'll be there. Why? Well, they're sons and daughters of Abraham. That's it. That's all we need to know. What does that pander to? Pride. It panders to pride. I have studied the rightness of the Scriptures, and I am standing firm in my rightness. That's it. No grace, no mercy, nothing. This is just right, and you need to conform. But they're not liking what they're hearing because what they conform to is the traditions of men. The scribes, the lawyers of the religious intelligentsia of the day took Moses, the law of Moses, and added a couple of hundred different traditions of men. And that's how they live their lives is according to the traditions of men. He's trying to pierce through that, this, this galvanized pride that they have. So if someone claims to be a Christian based upon his claim and what it, that what is in reality a false belief system which would send them to hell for eternity if they died in that condition, is it not incumbent upon the evangelist who loves them to give them the truth? Even if it's hard, that's our call. And it's not optional. We have to tell them the truth with respect, gentleness, love, kindness, but we do not withhold the truth. So I've got five assumptions that galvanize false security. And we need to be watching for these. They're, they galvanize people into false security and the polarizing truths that shatter it. So we'll see that as we go along. Our Lord presses these issues with greater and greater severity, as I was saying, in His evangelistic effort. And so should we. So should we. I knew somebody who was very close to me years ago, many years ago, and um, who called me one day extremely upset that her mother had been, who, by the way, belonged to a false religious system, had been suddenly and, and violently killed. And she called me and she was upset. And when the opportunity to discuss the gospel came up with her on the phone, and presented, I, I was explaining to her that unless a person trusted in Christ alone for their salvation, uh, they were not saved, and she became upset. And she told me that this was nothing, this was not something that I was saying, was not something that her mother believed in. And so I asked her what she believed in. And she said, 
that though she once held evangelical belief, she no longer did. She returned to her mother's false belief system. And I asked, why would you do that? She said, because I want to be where my mother is. Can we embrace someone to the point where at the tragic death, their tragic death, we want to go to be where they are, even if the scripture makes it clear that they're not saved? So these false beliefs have the power of persuasion. I mean, they can, they can be very compelling and draw people in. I mean, we see countless thousands of people that are drawn in and made shipwreck of their faith because they embrace these lies. So the first one that we see from verse 37 and 38, and these are statements now, so they're not little concise outlines. That's why I didn't give you those in ahead of time <clears throat> because they're going to be a little bit longer so that we get um, more specific about it from what we see here. First of all, true Christianity. So these are the, the truths from Scripture that shatter these false senses of security as Jesus is doing it uh, all through this passage. True Christianity is not validated by religious heritage, but by how one responds to the Word of God. That is so utterly critical. His whole gambit through all of these discourses that he's taken us through is really, if you want one major theme, it's you need to respond rightly to my word. It's over and over again as we've seen it. Verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen my, with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So Jesus is acknowledging, as he did in verse 33, that yes, you are. You're, 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 in, the linea you're in the lineage of, of Abraham, all right. But that's not what saves you. You can't say because you were raised in a Christian home that that's, you, just, you made an assumption there. These assumptions need to be shattered by the truth. The truth is those things don't save you. You can't point to the church you were raised in. Or you can't point to the time that you were at a youth camp and made a prayer. What is it based upon? It's based upon how one responds to the Word of God. Not only to be saved, but to follow Christ the rest of their lives. How are they responding to the Word of God? And Paul makes it very clear that that heritage, religious heritage, lineage, things like that, where you go to church or however you want to look at it, is not how somebody is saved. He makes it abundantly clear in Philippians 3, 3 to 9. We put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to the zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I had, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For what? For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's a foreign righteousness that we're given. If we are, in fact, actually saved, that should prevent us from any kind of, uh, any kind of pride or, or arrogance about it. He found nothing in us that was worthy of salvation, nothing that was pleasing to him, nothing that would be considered righteous. All of it is rejected. So we, we're, we need a, a righteousness, and it comes from Christ. That's what he's saying. All of those things I used to aspire to, because he's, he's fighting the same, the same foes that remain to this day in false religious systems. And if these guys think that they're righteous, I still more. But it's all garbage. It's all trash. It's all scubalon. Why? Because of its self-righteousness. He's making his list, his resume here. He's floating out his resume to show how worthy he is of heaven as a Pharisee, as one circumcised on the eighth day, as from the tribe of Benjamin, the venerated tribe, Hebrew of Hebrews, to the law, zealous. Oh, he's zealous for the law. And all of it is nothing. He says, then, my word finds no place in you. In other words, the divinely inspired words of Christ have no life in them. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 17, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, the two camps. We give the word of God, we let it go out, and there are going to be some in one and some in the other galvanized there. To one, verse 16, a fragrance from death to death. The other, a fragrance from life to life. You see that contrast again. The two different groups of people. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of the word of God, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. That's all we do. We speak what the Lord says. We speak from his word. That's it. And we let him, as he said through the prophet Isaiah, my word will not return to me empty or void. It will accomplish its purpose. But as Simeon prophesied, it's going to be the fall of some and the rise for another. It's going to pierce your heart, Mary. Secondly, from verse 39 and 40, true Christianity is not validated by religious practices, but by faith manifested in obedience. The faith manifests itself in obedience. Let's see what he says. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. 
In verse 56 of our chapter, John chapter 8, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. In Galatians 3, 5 to 9, Paul unpacks this even further for us where he says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you, the Holy Spirit, and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You hear, and because you have faith, you're galvanized in that area. Like Abraham was, you're hearing with faith. And you see these powerful things happen and you accept them as they are the powerful works that validate, that reveal Jesus as the Messiah. But they're not, they're not on board with that. He goes on in verse 6, Just as Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he believed in God and it was counted to him righteousness. Why? Because it wasn't a righteousness of his own, was it? Verse 7, know, that, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So Paul is making it clear. He, he's fully cognizant, I'm sure, of Jesus and his dealings with the Pharisees claiming that because of our lineage and because we keep the feast days and we, we, mint, tithe, we uh, tithe mint and cumin, we, we count out the, the seeds and so on. He said, no, that's not what Abraham did. And so this, this true Christianity is validated rather by faith that manifests itself in obedience. So you're truly a son of Abraham if you believe like he did and are justified by the righteousness of God. Verse 8, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand, to Abraham. So it came to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. That's the order of things, right? That's what he's saying. First Abraham, but then all along when you look at the prophets, God's plan was to save the Gentiles, saying, in you shall all nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So you're a child of Abraham if you do what Abraham did. So it's like, well, he had faith. So there were those even as far back as Martin Luther who wrestled with there being any works involved. As a matter of fact, he referred to the, the epistle of James as a, an epistle of straw. He wanted to cut it out of his Bible. Why? Well, because James says this, James 2, 21 to 24, with regard to Abraham, listen to this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active. Note, faith is active. It always is. Faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. It's the evidence that it is his faith alone that saved him. It will always evidence itself in obedience. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person justified by works and not by faith alone. Faith, if it's by itself, he concludes in verse 26, is what? Faith, if it's alone, is what? It's dead. It's dead. So instead of saying we need to cut James out so that we can live the way that we want to 
I believe in Jesus. Well, so do the who? The demons believe. And what, what's the result? Right, because they're a, not a convertible. They're not a, uh, you, you can't convert a demon. But they believe in Jesus. A lot of people say they believe in Jesus. But what's changed in their life, if anything? So it's proven in the outworking of his life, the things that he does. And that's what he's saying. If you were Abraham's children, verse 39 again, you would be doing what Abraham did because what he did was obey God, even when it meant raising a knife above his own son, his only son, Isaac. Right? That's some pretty strong obeying right there. But it's all out of faith. It's all out of faith. It's all out of trust. It's all out of firm belief, unshakable belief. So three, this is our third point from verse 41 and 42. True Christianity is not validated by outward confidence in yourself, but in an inward love for Jesus. Verse 41 and 42, you are doing what your father did they said to him, We are not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came of my own accord. I did not, I came not, rather, of my own accord, but he sent me. We were not born of sexual immorality. There they go again, taking it to an ad hominem argument. They're, uh, it, surely they're giving reference to the fact that Joseph didn't sire that child. And so they're accusing him of sexual immorality. They're accusing him of being born from sexual immorality. This is how the legalistic moralists think. They judge they judge you. And they look at things on the outside. They validate, validate their self-righteousness, as I've often said, by counting and measuring and weighing. That's how you can recognize them. They're weighing external things that they assume. So they see Jesus saying and doing things. They see that he came from a woman who we really don't know who the father is to that child, and they're making one colossal assumption. That's why these are five assumptions that are being made that are shattered by the truth. Oh, well, often we assume what we know, that we know why somebody's doing what they're doing. They're making, all they're doing with him is making assumptions and judging him. They say, you're wrong because I am morally righteous by heritage and religious observances, right? You, on the other hand, are a sinner. They didn't even know Jesus, if you remember. You don't know me. You don't know, you don't know my father. How do you pretend to know me? You're making some pretty stark judgments and you don't know me because you haven't seen my heart and you've never even asked. They don't want to ask him. They want him to stop talking. They're waiting for him to say something that they can judge and then execute him on. That's it. John 9, 
39 to 41, we were talking about the man born blind. And um, it's just, I think it's one of the best stories in, in John. It's just wonderful. At the very end, we'll just touch on the end because we're going to, Lord willing, we'll be in John 9 soon and enjoy that, that exchange. So verse 39 to 41, near the end there of chapter 9, Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see. Now this is more of that sort of esoteric language, that a little enigmatic. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees knew him, heard these things, and said to him, Are we also blind? I think they knew exactly what he was talking about. You think that you can see spiritually, and you can't. You're blind, but you think you can see. So I can't help you. I can't help you. It's ones who know that they're blind. I can't see. I need to see, Lord. I need to see you as Messiah. I need to know the truth. Because you said it is the truth that will what? Set you free. I need to be set free, Lord. That's the blind man. So he goes on, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, in other words, if you knew that you were spiritually blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. It's only the sick who needs a physician, true? Those who are willing to say, No, no I'm sick and I need a physician. I can't heal myself there's no person on the planet that can heal me. I'm going to the one who can. But it's a level of humility that they're not willing to take. And I like the way the blind man deals with them there. But if you were, if God were your father, Jesus said, you would love me. How are any of these Pharisees that are have been with him now for some time as we've gone through these chapters. How are any of them demonstrating their love for Christ? 1 Corinthians 16, 22 is pretty stark. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Ouch. It's pretty straightforward. But now listen to this. Listen to John 14. John 14, 21 to 24. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So that's how he defines love. That's what Abraham did. Because he had faith, he obeyed. He is saved by the outworking of the work of God in him, by faith. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Love must do this. The love of Christ and the love shown by the person who accepts him for who he is, which they're not doing, but there are some there that do. Judas, verse 22, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? He only understands that one way. If you're going to be manifested, everybody's going to see you. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and he will come, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Again, 
this issue of genuine Christianity, of real Christianity, is absolutely predicated on your response to the Word of Christ. If you're not responding it to it, you're not loving Him. If you're not loving Him, how can we say we belong to Him? That's His point to them. So it's not because of our confidence in ourselves, because we, again, belong to a particular church or were raised in a particular religion or made some statement along the way. It's how we respond to the word. And in this third point, it's the obvious love for Jesus as he defines love, which is keeping his word. If you do that, he goes on, my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. It doesn't get any plainer than that. How are they responding to the word of God? Faith is manifest in obedience and an inward love for Christ that manifests itself in obedience. So between the faith I have and the love for Christ I have and the call to follow him, that's evidence of true belief in Christ. Fourth, true Christianity is not validated by traditions and interpretations of men, but by hearing from God. Verse 43 and 44. Verse 44. First word, uh, verse 43. Why do you not say, or why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. They don't want to hear it. They want him to say things that they agree with. And if they don't, there's a problem there. There's a big problem with them. Why do you not understand? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. So think about it. You're not here this morning, as sweet as the fellowship is here. You're not here primarily for the fellowship, are you? Even though that's in our name, Grace Bible Fellowship. What's your pri primary reason for filling a seat right now? You want to hear my opinions? You want to hear what I think politically? No. Yeah. It, I'm glad you're laughing because that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen for me. You're here because you want to hear whatever God has to say to you, however bracing it might be. And if it's bracing, let it come. If he's speaking to you, respond. That's the point. And why do you do that? Why do you come to hear from God? Because you, you love Him. You love Him. And He's God. So there's also the fear of God, the reverential fear of our Heavenly Father. It's hard to wrap our mind around that because these days there really aren't a lot of children that have that healthy, respectful fear of Father in their family and yet they love him. So they just look forward to doing things that bring a smile on their father's face and they avoid the things that they know would be painful for him to see. But they can't understand. 
they're spiritually dead and blind. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Holy Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They're spiritually appraised, so they can't. And I think it's out of pity that he continues to go and, and, and preach the word to them anyway, correcting them, but it's getting more and more intense. And again, that's the winnowing fork. The more intense it gets, the more difficult it is to resist what he's saying without ending up galvanizing yourself against his word. It's a dangerous thing to do. Verse 44, he says, you talk about ratcheting things up in terms of their intensity. Can you imagine someone saying this today? You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. He's a progenitor of every lie that would follow. So like uh, the old expression used to go, if how do we know that de uh, the devil's lying? Because his lips are moving. <laughs> it's his character, right? I mean, that's he's not capable of ever telling the truth. He doesn't have an in him, Jesus is saying, which is, a, in, again, you see stark contrast, wow, between Satan, who is by character a liar, and then Jesus, who by character is what? The truth. I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody's going to come to God. Nobody's going to go to see the Father except through me. It has to be by way of truth. By way of my coming and bringing life into their heart in that regenerative way that they can hear now <clears throat> and understand my words and act upon them. And <clears throat> the first action should be humility. It should be conviction. It should be brokenness. It should be confession. That's what happens at the cross. So he's the father of all lies. So Jesus is essentially saying, that's who your father is. Your father isn't Abraham. You're not of, of, of the father either. You're not, our, your father is not God. It's not Abraham. Oh, you, you come from his line, but that doesn't get you saved. Why? Because that line is what? Corrupt. It's sinful. It's fallen. Because we're all sinners, right? Satan killed us all in the garden. Pretty effective, isn't he? With one powerful, seducing lie. He killed mankind off. But God by, God, by his grace and mercy, has the prototype of the gospel there in the garden as he has to slay an animal, shed its blood, in order to make an adequate covering for Adam and Eve. He... He's used to lying. Pharisees follow the devil's likeness by lying in order to get Jesus killed. It's all lies, every bit of it. None of it is true. Fifth and finally, verse 45, 46 and 47. True Christianity is not validated by subjecting yourself to hearing the word only, 
but by submitting to it. So it's not just hearing the word. It's not, again, pointing to the church where you have heard the word preached. It's how you respond. His word goes out for a reason, Isaiah 55. It, it's meant to pierce the hearts and send you into one camp or the other. Galvanize you with love for him and a willingness to follow him according to his word or reject him and reject his word. And that's what they're doing up to this point. Verse 45, But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Well, he was sinless. We were talking about that in the first hour, right? So 1 Peter 2.22 says, I don't think we read that one this morning, but he committed no sin. He's citing Isaiah 53. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. You can also look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. All of those words that come together to make it very clear that he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's a foreign righteousness by the one, the only one who walked on this planet that is without sin completely, fully righteous in his own, and he makes that available to us by imputation, as it's called. It's an accountant's term. He simply says, all of this is to pay your account in full. That's why we celebrate communion here this morning. Why would he do that? Why would he give me all of his righteousness? And why would he suffer what he suffered? He, in, in, in our view, as we've just getting as far as we did to John 8, look at how much he's suffered already. He's having his reputation slandered, battered, and he's telling the truth. He's suffering already. I think he's suffering because he loves them. He loves them and he wants them to respond to his word of truth. And they're not. They're not. I think that hurt him deep, deeply. Verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. I mean, he's getting more and more intense, more and more clear. I am from above. You are from the earth I'm telling you the truth. You're of your father, the uh, you're of your father who is a liar. To say somebody's the son of somebody else, and 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 name who their father is means that genetically they have characteristics of that that father, their earthly father. There's characteristics of of, of my dad that I have, and and the rest of you as well. So what he's saying is. In verse 44, in our last section, you are of the father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. And so he's saying here that in this passage that you're doing the will of Satan. You're, you're responding to what you hear from the devil. What does that mean? They're allowing themselves in their dead, blind, fallen state to hear the voices of the enemy. The unwitting participants in his ugly, malevolent agenda. And they're dead and blind to it. He's trying to pierce through that darkness with his word to show them. 
You're, you're not keeping my words. You're keeping His. You hear Him. And you do His will. And boy, are they about to, aren't they? They sure are. They want Him dead. I'll finish with 1 John 3, 8 to 10. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this is it, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. There's the two camps, the two categories, one of two. They belong to whoever does not practice righteousness or respond in the outworkings like Abraham did is not of God, nor is the one who does not love God his brother. So if you have the love of Christ in you, you are of God if you manifest love for your brother. There's only two. I want to draw your attention to something in verse 9. It says, no one born of God makes a practice of sin. So it's not that we reach a state of perfection. Sorry, Wesley, you were wrong. <laughs> that Wesleyan view is just wrong that it's no longer sins. It's actually just we're making mistakes now. Ah, that's just so much semantics. They do that all the time in politics, don't they? To advance their narrative. No, we're not going to tinker with God's words. But note the word practice. So it's somebody who with impunity can keep on holding to sin, sin practices, sinful behavior. For God's seed abides in him. So it's, it's impossible. He can't do that. Why? Well, my life before Christ, I sinned with impunity. I was blind. Didn't bother me. I had to have the law come along to show me how I was sinning. And it's like, wow. Eyes are open. But with the seed of God in me, now my relationship to sin has changed. It's not that you're sinless. It's that your relationship to sin changes. You're going to sin as a Christian, but now you're broken over it. When God shows it to you, it's convicting. And you cry out, you make confession to God. And you say, God, forgive me, have mercy, a sinner. And he forgives you. So he says after that, and he cannot keep on sinning. Note the words, keep on. Because some Christians struggle with this. They say, well, I sin. Yeah, you don't practice sin without it troubling your conscience. Now, with the Holy Spirit resident in you, when the Lord has shown you through His Word that you're sinning, you're deeply convicted. And you make the change. You confess that to Him. And you seek forgiveness. And you find it in Him. So I just... Here's a question I leave with all of us. It's straight up noon, and here's the question. Which family do you belong to? We spent an hour talking about how we could know the difference. 
And if you're not sure, don't take the elements of the Lord's Supper unless and until you make that right. And you can come to Him now if you came in and knowing that was sin in your heart. Deal with it now or let the cup pass by or you'll bring condemn, further condemnation on yourself. He's ready. He's there. Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. You are truly my disciples, chapter 831, if you abide in my word. If my word has found its place in your heart, and it will have, if you're deeply convicted about something that you need to be, make right with the Lord, and I encourage you, I urge you to do that before you would partake of the Lord's Supper. This is his body and his blood given up to make it perfectly free for you to come and confess and receive the forgiveness of Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the clarity of it. There, there's nothing confusing about it. It's just hard to hear in places for us. I, I thank you for your patience with us. I thank you for the love that you show. Even as we observe how long that you endured with those that, that want to, wanted to kill you and did. But you've risen again. You are alive. And there's forgiveness in you. You always hold out that hand as long as we draw breath to come to you and make things right. So I pray for each and every one in this, your house today, that we would make things right with you if we haven't. So be with us now, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.